todo el mundo. Hello, I'm Nipper Reed. And I'm Phil Wolf. So, settle down, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy the Venomous Exchange Radio Podcast. Crumpets, Nipper. I want the crumpets. Well, as you've been such an extraordinarily good boy. Ah, hello, folks. Uh, welcome to our inaugural episode of what we hope will be a very popular uh, podcast. Uh, Phil and I were chatting amongst ourselves and we felt that there wasn't really a podcast for venomous keepers and enthusiasts. There seems to be podcasts for everything else. Uh, there's a lizard podcast, Aquarius podcast, and loads of Australian podcasts. Both Phil and I have been long-term venomous keepers and field herpers. We know there's a big following for that sort of thing out there. So we thought maybe it's time we had a little podcast for ourselves. So you get the pleasure of listening to Phil and I waffle on about all things venomous. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Nipper. I've been a keeper of venomous for many, many years. Um, and I'm lucky enough to be co-hosting with the rather fabulous Phil Wolf, and I'll just hand you over to him. He can introduce himself. Thank you very much. On. Thank you very much. Uh, well put, sir. Our inaugural episode, episode one of the Venom Exchange Radio podcast. Uh, there's a lot of venomous stuff out there in the ether, whether it be on uh, YouTube or Instagram or what have you. And a lot of it can be misleading. A lot of it can be exaggerated. And a lot of it can be downright dangerous. So I, not to speak for Nipper, but I feel both of us have a pretty good grasp on husbandry and field work and ethics and uh, proper safety protocols. And I feel that it's the time that, you know, the two of us can kind of bring you as much as we can and, and bring on some guests that are even better than we are and, not to toot our own horn, but the time has come. So here we are without further ado. Um, Nipper, you want to give us a little bit about how you got into venomous keeping? Yeah, sure. Um, venomous keeping in the UK is probably quite different to in the States and in the rest of Europe. It's very, very heavily controlled. Um, to own any venomous species at all in the UK, you have to be licensed. Uh, it's a DWA license, so it's Dangerous Wild Animals license, and uh, it costs a lot of money. And there's quite a few hoops you've got to jump through to um, own the venomous stuff. Uh, it differs from the US in we don't have to do any practice hours at all, which I think is wrong. I like the way that certain states in the US do it, where you have to do a certain number of hours mentoring with somebody before you uh, can be certificated. In the UK, in theory... As long as you fill the requirements of the DWA license in terms of safe housing of the animals and a knowledge of their husbandry, uh, somebody that's never, ever handled a venomous snake can get the license and the next day own a king cobra or a taboya or absolutely anything. There's, there's, there's no requirement to, um, to have any formal training with it, which I think is wrong. Uh, that said... Yeah, that said, I think the stringency of the, the, the checks that they do on your home um, 
uh, and the the venom protocols and bite protocols that you have to produce. I think that that's very well done in the UK. Um, so f for myself, I, I, I'm a reasonably old person now. I've been keeping uh, various reptiles since I was about probably 10 years old. My first reptile I kept was a ribbon snake, to my shame. Um, There's no shame in that. That's fantastic. <laughs> I know, uh, but I've never kept ball pythons at all, so uh, I'm not a proper keeper, you understand? Yeah, uh, you're allowed yeah. to say royal pythons. This is our show. Oh, can, can I say that? Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've, never, I've, I've never kept royal pythons, um, so clearly I know nothing of uh, herpes culture. Um, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, my first you know, reptile was a ribbon snake. Um, from an early age, I've been field herping. I've always, our, one of our commonest snakes is uh, Vipera berus, the adder. Unfortunately, when I moved out of London, the area I lived in had big populations of these snakes and they're venomous and everybody's terrified of them. Um, and they're no more venomous than a copperhead or anything like that. And fabulous looking snakes. And I always wanted to keep one as a pet, but wasn't wasn't possible. So I kept the usual things. Um, colubrids, loads of boas, that sort of thing. And then I started getting into rear fang stuff because in the UK you need no license at all for rear fang snakes, uh, which is a kind of kind of silly because you know some of the rear fang snakes, some of the larger boiga, uh, toxicledrus, anything like that can give you quite an unpleasant bite, but there is no restriction in the UK. So I at one point had a very, very large collection of rear fang stuff. Um, what, what do they constitute rear fang over there? Literally, as it says, anything that uh, has a rear fang delivery system, you so can even, pretty much own. So even like Western hognose is is the same grouping as Boiga? Yes, 100%. Wow. There's um, the only rear fang snake, a common, well, I mean, there's probably others, but the common rear fang snake that is on the DWA licensing is the Montpellier snake, which is um, Malpalon, Malpalon, and Malpalon. Ignatus or something like that, I can't remember. Right. Um, the Western and the Eastern variants, um, they are they are still on DWA, but the majority of uh, rear fang snakes you can own, you can own the biggest boiga in the UK um, without any license whatsoever. So for years, I kept a lot of those. Um, um, there's a lot of keepers in the UK that keep illegally because of the role I'm in at work, I, there's no there's no way for me to keep a venomous snake without a license. I wasn't going to go down that road. So um, it got to the stage where I thought, no, I want to I want to start getting into this. I want to do it properly. So uh, I contacted some people I know, um, some some great people like Peter Gibbons, who hopefully we can get on and have a chat with, who's a very well respected uh, keeper in the UK, and um, I've worked with some other people trying to understand what it's like to actually keep to keep venomous because as right. you know it's it's a world away from keeping a corn snake or something yeah. like that just, just in terms of the husbandry even the simplest things are magnified you right. know a hundred times because of the potential danger yeah um, and you develop so many bad habits keeping non-venomous stuff that god forbid when the time comes it, it's almost it's almost better to I don't want to say this and be taken out of context, but it's almost better to train someone 
who's never handled snakes before in venomous keeping because if they've had years and years of harmless stuff where they're just willy-nilly opening stuff up with their hands yeah you see where i'm going with this but sorry 100 i completely agree um but uh i decided i was gonna i was gonna um go for my dwa license to enable that i had to sell quite a few of my uh quite a bit of my collection i had quite a nice collection of um some of the rarer tree boas at the time, various other bits and bobs, but I sold all of that. Um, and I had to redo the snake building that I had to make it come up to the safety requirements of the UK licensing, uh, putting extra doors in. Um, the cages have to be different. Uh, cage sizes are different. Security of the cages is different. So I refitted my room and then it was time for me to actually go and uh, decide what venom snakes I actually wanted to keep. Uh, now we're talking a long time ago now, and you know things are very easy for people now. With uh, there's so many internet databases, there's so many podcasts, there's so many forums. There wasn't a mass of that around at that time. We're talking, you know, 20 years ago nearly when I first right. started getting into venomous snakes. Um, but I did my research. I knew kind of the thing I wanted to keep. Um, so. I started going to the European shows. You're familiar with the Ham and the Houghton shows, the big international shows. Oh, yeah. Unlike the US, which seems to have lots of little local shows, it doesn't happen so much in Europe. There's there's big shows. Um, and the, the Ham show is probably one of the, I think to memory, is the biggest reptile show in the world. Yeah. Uh, happens four times a year. It hasn't happened for two years now because of COVID, but at the time it was happening four times a year. And then you've got the slightly smaller Houghton show. Um, Ham is in Germany. Houghton is in Holland. Uh, and the Holland show, once a year, they have International Snake Day. And at that show, you can get anything. And I mean anything. You can get a unicorn for cash at that show. Um, now, when you first started doing this about 20 years ago, was the tunnel already built? Yes. It, okay. it, was, uh, it was early days of the tunnel. Um, okay. So you could you could in theory drive across the channel and pick up whatever you wanted. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, yeah, um, yeah I, I, there's no point going on a ferry that's going to take you, you know, two hours when you can go through a tunnel that takes half an hour. Right. Um, right. Li- literally for the Houghton show, door to door driving um, is four and a half hours. Wow. Um, and that's me crossing three countries yeah. to get. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm quite fortunate where I live. I'm, I'm, I'm close to the the south coast, so I can I can get down there. Um, so I went to the show. I had a, some snakes in mind that I wanted to buy, and I got my first venomous snakes. What do you think my first venomous snakes were? Oh, geez, it's so tough because I know you now, so I don't. Know. I know, I know. I have I think things in my mind that that. So, I want to say. Chlorecus? No. Good shout, but no. All right. Um, uh, man. I'll go Telescopus. No. Serastis Vipera. Oh, all right. Curveball. Which is, which is an unusual first venomous snake, I think, because, uh, as you yeah. know, more than probably more than anybody, if you're getting Serastis Vipera, you are just keeping a little box of sand. Yeah. You hardly ever see them. Um Aspidellaps, some very nice examples of Aspidellaps, which I spent an awful lot of money on. Um, but they what was worked. a lot of money back then? 
Oh, I want to say it was a long time. I want to say around 250 uh, pounds for this particular location. Okay. Uh, Do you remember the location? uh some spring box something i can't okay. remember okay. but right. the colors were insane on it absolutely it was like a child's drawing of a little cobra it was just fabulous awesome. um and then after that i was just into the trimericerus i had loads various white lips my favorite which i'm still kicking myself that i didn't keep um i had various localities of punicius which were stunning nice bright golds um and with those i just learned the trade for want of a better word i took my time i was very very um almost over cautious which i think is a better way to be and i just learned how to deal with venomous snakes um for a very long time I, I, i just kept to those snakes for a long long time and then um, it came to the stage where I was very fortunate. I met my fiance, and I decided that I was going to move to where she lived, which was uh, a, a big undertaking in itself. Oh, sorry, slightly before that, not wish to put down on things, I was diagnosed with cancer. So I thought keeping venomous snakes and having chemo and radiotherapy is not great. Yeah. So I sold pretty much everything. A smart um, move. Yeah, that, you, you know, if you're not on top form, you can't be dealing with venomous snakes. And I had some great friends that took animals and kept them for me, and um, w- w- was absolutely splendid. People so supportive; it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, anyway, cancer's done with, done dusted. Uh, I moved to a different county, and when you change counties in the UK, the laws are the same but how they uh progress them are slightly different so i had to reapply for my dwa license so i reapplied for my license uh i've got a purpose-built snake building in the garden because my fiance although she l- loves field herping with me she is not keen on anything in the house so i have a building uh, so i have that constructed with dwa in mind and uh i've spent a great deal of money on because it's lovely to start from scratch right. and have slightly more experience and know what I want to keep. So um, I went heavily into Aetherius. I've kept uh, Nishii, Ceratophora, which I bred. Um, nice. Clarechis, Broadlii, Squamigera. I feel like I'm missing some, but I've kept all of those. Um, I got more trims so i had trigonocephalus which is absolutely stunning um oh absolutely beautiful snakes um i got some of the rare caucasian european vipers i had renardi erywinensis lotievi orlovi yeah which again i sold the orlovi thinking i should get some more and now you just cannot get them in the hobby at all Absolutely amazing, tiny little beautiful pink vipers, just oh, insane. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to get those again. Um, tried keeping some berus. You can't keep them indoors. They have to be kept outside. Really? Uh, um, unless, you, unless you have many generations down the line captive bred, in my humble experience, I don't think you can keep berus indoors. I don't think it works. 
I've got friends that keep them outdoors, have great success with them, but keeping them inside just doesn't seem to work for them. Um, I got more Serastis because it's one of my favourite genuses. I mean, I know you love them. Um, I think they're absolutely insane. Um, And a lot of the stuff that I kept was spurred on by the fact that if I was field herping, I'd see them in the wild and then, of course, you you want to see it. And then then, um, I seem to have gone down a little rabbit hole with uh, the smaller American rattlesnakes. I just love them. Uh, So I keep um, two types of pygmy rattlesnake. I'm desperately trying to get, we've got problems with COVID trying to get to shows at the moment, but I'm trying to get... uh, some rock rattlesnakes, Aquilus, Clowberi, Lepidus, that sort of thing. So at the minute, the collection, my venomous collection, is not as big as it normally is because there's no shows. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've got um, lots of atheris at the minute. I've got a ton of rear fang stuff, and I've got the smaller rattlesnakes. That's where we are at the minute. Going forward, I'm trying to move on all of the rear fang stuff, the false water cobras, the boiga, uh, the telescopus, things like that, and um, just concentrate on Crotalus, Cistrurus, and uh, maybe a couple of other little bits and bobs. But that's the way forward. I like it. I like so it. it's been it's been kind of a fifteen twenty year journey with Venomous. Um, there isn't the sort of network that there is in the UK. There's there's very very few Venomous keepers in the UK compared to non Venomous keepers. Right, um, because the licensing is quite expensive. Um, there's a there's a fair few non-licensed venomous keepers, um, but as far as as legal venomous keepers, it's a very small, very small world in the UK. Oh, healers, that's the other thing. Healers and beadeds. I've had some fun with those. Managed to breed healers before, which is cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's on my so, to do list. Yeah, you'll do it, mate. They're they're not. I don't think they're difficult personally yeah well i got i got scared and this past year was my first time trying it and rob stone told me no man just let them fight it's fine they won't kill each other and the minute i saw blood all over the ground i was like oh i gotta get them out so yeah i I chickened out i think the only problem you're gonna have is i think we've discussed this is getting them cold enough Yeah. yeah well i mean i got the chiller and all that so this year we'll try it again yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's a long journey. And I say, I'm looking forward, going forward to thinning everything out and just concentrating really well on species that bring me joy rather than having a massive collection. And the, the little, I mean, um, Owen and Keith and uh, Rob and Justin have all just come back from Arizona. Yeah. But, a trip that I was supposed to be on. Unfortunately, COVID meant that no Europeans could enter the US. Uh, so thanks for that. Um, <laughs> and they have been absolutely torturing me with pictures of the rattlesnakes that they saw. Just incredible. Uh, they saw my most wanted number one venomous species, which I will own one day, which is Crotalus willardi. Um, but yeah, they had a cracking trip. So it's that's fired me up. I'm really motivated just to get a really nicely curated collection of American species. I love it, man. And I I know 
that when Rob sent you that photo, I could I could physically see your face. <laughs> and it's it's the only way that I env- I envisioned it in my mind. It was tears of joy with facial expressions of disgust. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, it was. Yeah. Uh, I was so stoked when they when they they messaged me and they said they found Willardo. I immediately was stoked for them. I just thought, what a thing to see in the wild. Yeah. And then about a nanosecond later, I was swearing, "You mofo's! <laughs> How can you find it without me?" Then. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. Is he texted me at? I mean, it was probably close to midnight my time you know because they're three hours they're three hours behind me and you're five hours ahead of me and they text me rob texts me saying we got one and then he just sent me a, a like a like a google map thing so i could see where they were but there was no picture and like in my heart i knew it was a ridge nose <laughs> and then like four hours later, I guess they finally got into cell service and the picture sent. And it was like, I woke up in the middle and I was like, why is he texting? Oh my God. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool. So what yeah. about you fella? Oh, so, um, I don't, I, I have been doing venomous a long time and I, it's, it's a long story and it's a drawn out story and I'll have to do my best to give the abridged version of it. But, I stumbled into venomous herpetofauna on accident. Um, essentially, I was working for, I'd always been to reptiles. I'd had reptiles as a kid. And getting out of high school and going into college, um, I had worked at this pet shop. And uh, as I was there, everyone would tell me, I, I, was, I was going to Underground Reptiles retail store at least once a week, if not two, three times a week, and just hanging out there and buying stuff from them, whatever else. And somebody said, oh, you should work for underground. You should work for underground. I was like, no, 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 I can't do that. I don't I don't know enough to work there. And they're like, no, man, they're just normal people. Go work there. So I went in there one day, and uh, I, I went in, and I was like, hey, you guys hiring? And the manager was like, yeah, we are. Here's an application. And, uh, you know, the owner, Ryan, he'll call you and set up an appointment to do an interview. So I was like, all right. I, I figured I'll be banging, bagging crickets and killing rats and whatever else, cleaning poo, you know, standard pet shop stuff. And... I never got a phone call. So I just went in on a Friday and the owner Ryan's there and he goes, Hey Philly, what's going on, man? I said, I'm, I'm here for an interview. I never got a phone call. He goes, Oh, Oh, oh you're the Phil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> get to work. Start, start opening those boxes. And I was like, okay. And like, that's how I got hired. It's just like that. And uh, I was working there for maybe three or four months and underground has always had a small corner in the back of their retail store that was devoted to venomous stuff. And they would have classes to teach people how to handle safely. Well, prior to my employment there, um, no one, no one was really teaching it. It was just one or two guys that were friends of the store. They maybe had a snake on display. They go there, they clean some cages, they throw some rats in and call it a day. There was no like class like it used to be. Um, I didn't even know the class existed at this point. And you know, when I was a kid, I had rubber cobras in a, my mother's decorative baskets and I would, you know, wrap a towel around my head and, you know, I would play the snake charmer, right? Well, that's that's not sinister at all. I know, right? It's not. It's not. And uh, I had all these rubber cobras and I had the, you remember the old wooden or sometimes they were plastic. It was like a chain link that was real long and it would, it would bend and it had a little cobra head on it and you'd wiggle the back and yeah. the front would wiggle. So I had all those child's toys and my mom was anti-snake. 
And she's like, when you're 18, you can do whatever you want. By the way, she doesn't sound like that. That's just my information. <laughs> um, she's like, when you're 18, you can do whatever you want, blah, blah, blah. Well, so I start working underground. I see they have these animals. I was like, man, that's cool, but it's too dangerous. I'm a rational adult. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no business handling them. And I poo-pooed it. So about three, four months into working there, doing the jobs that I thought I was going to do, cleaning poo, bagging crickets, that sort of thing. Um, one of the guys that worked there, he's like, hey, man, uh, you're opening the store by yourself sometimes. What if you, what if something got loose? You need to know how to handle venomous. It might be a good idea for you to take some lessons and, you know, to do some hours, you know, get some hours. And at the time, the Florida license was only a thousand hours in one year. So a lot of people were kind of coming in, doing their thousand hours whenever they could. It'd take them about a year, year and a half, whatever it was, and they get their license. And I didn't know any of this. I was 18. What did I know? And uh, I was like, you know, what? that's not a bad idea. And a good friend of mine had started mentoring there as the instructor. So I started getting a couple lessons from him and I was hooked. And that was it. I was legit. No pun intended. I was hooked. And I had to know everything there could about venoms and venomous animals and just the, the different aspects of husbandry and keeping and breeding and all that stuff. And then learning about the, the geography and the localities and the ecosystems and, you know, everything that, that we love and we, 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 we realize is part of this uh, unique aspect of herpetoculture and herpetofauna, it slammed me one night in the face. And I was like, this is intense. I need to keep doing this. This is awesome. So I kept going more and kept going more. And then the manager of the store, he taught me some stuff. And that's when I met my late mentor, uh, uh, Frank Menzer. So Frank Menzer was a local guy who bred a lot of funky stuff. He had hydrogenastus. He had um, uh, spitalaps. Uh, he had Montpelier's. I mean, he had all kinds of unique eclectic stuff. He, he, had, he had actual mole snakes. The only wow. mole snakes I've ever seen in the United States were his. Um, and uh, they were five foot long and thick as your wrist. They were massive animals, awesome animals. And I, I have a feeling that a lot of my uh, affinity for African species comes from Frank because at the time when I was with him, there was a ton of African stuff coming in. Kenya was open. Uganda was open. So we were getting a lot of really cool stuff back then. And uh, sadly, he passed away from, from heart condition stuff many years ago, but at that point with Frank, he only spoke in scientific names. So taxonomic nomenclature became my, my life. And I realized that the guys and the gals that were keeping venomous legit, they only use scientific names. So then I started down this rabbit hole. And it's, that's where, it's, it's yeah. really different in the U.S. to it is, as I say, I had this conversation with other people. In the US, you rarely use scientific names. Yeah. In Europe, we only use scientific names. Yeah. Across the whole of Europe, you know, um, and it, it causes so much confusion. When I hear people on American podcasts discussing things, I haven't got a clue half the time because what's named one thing in one part of America is a different thing in a different part of America. It's, right. it's all, you know, so I think that's fantastic, as you say, that, there's a venomous community that actually uses the scientific names. It's definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So I was working underground and then I was dealing with the, the venomous there. And I was learning from my late mentor, Frank, and I had 
wound up parting ways with with underground and doing a couple of things working for my dad for a little bit but i still maintained the venomous collection at the retail store and at the time there was nobody teaching the class so the owner said hey man do you want to take you know two weeks two days out of the week and come for a couple hours and just you know mentor or spot these guys make sure they don't you know kill themselves so to speak i said sure of course i love that i love education and i started doing the actual mentor program at underground's retail store and i would say i did that for about 12 years straight um and we went through a lot of people and you could tell who was in it just to get you know there was no instagram back then but you could tell who wanted it for you know myspace and facebook and then you could tell who's actually passionate about it right um and then i wound up taking a job at strictly reptiles which was a wholesaler and I had worked for a couple other wholesalers in between because let's face it, South Florida is the Mecca of reptile wholesale. Right. And uh, I was working for Strictly for a while as their venomous guy. And it was actually kind of fun because the owner kind of let me make my own schedule. So I would come in at like 10 in the morning, bang out, you know, five, six, seven, sometimes eight hours of cleaning and then go home. And I, if, oh, I didn't feel like going in, I didn't feel like going in. As long as the animals were taken care of, that's all he cared about. Um, they had other guys there that could handle venomous, that could box stuff up and ship stuff out. So all I was doing was cleaning and feeding. But at any given time, that one room would have between 150 and 400 animals in it. Wow. And it, we're talking all different species from around the world. So uh, the goal was honestly to move the animals before they would feel the effects of being at the same temperature. So we kept everything pretty much 80 degrees. I had different substrates. I had heat lamps and stuff, and I had some UV stuff. And, you know, certain things got misted more often than others. But the goal was to sell animals. That's, that was the business. So a lot of the stuff that I worked with, I didn't keep it very long. I mean, maybe two months, three months max before it would get sold. But I had the ability to not only still be able to teach at Underground, but work with arguably the most vast series or array of species of venomous that that anyone could ever ask for i mean if you name it it came through yeah. Yeah. it's an amazing you know chance to have such a huge grounding most keepers will probably work with i don't know five ten species in their whole venomous career for want of a better word to have that throughput is fantastic yeah yeah and uh that's where i also it was very much a baptism by fire because i had learned so much on the hobby aspect and the safe handling aspect and now i'm not dealing with a vision cage or a vivarium i'm dealing with a plastic shoebox and the only thing keeping the lid on this plastic shoebox is the box above it and because you have mass quantities of animals and you learn very very quick that there won't be any close calls you will get envenomated you will get bit and now you have to be on your toes and I jokingly say that's where I picked up smoking because at the time I would work for about 30, 40 minutes and then I would take a break and I work for 30, 40 minutes and I take a break and I pace myself because I had seen so many of my peers get into a rhythm where they're going and they're going and they're going and they do another snake and they do another snake and they do and wham, they get tagged. And, and that's kind of where I started to develop my, my training mantra on venomous was dealing with all the different unique and eclectic species i mean we had everything from basic monococobras to you know mcmahoni leaf nose vipers and you know kaznakovi and i mean australasian stuff uh, uh pseudo naja and pseudo haji you know at the same time um so it was very very unique it was a lot of fun and 
I slowly got out of that. And like I said, I worked for a couple other wholesalers, but I took about 10 years off. Um, I kept a handful of Cobras as pets, but I took about 10 years off from working for reptiles because as Nipper and I have spoken about in the past, it's very difficult to do what you love day in and day out and still want to do it when you go home. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I feel like, although I was still teaching the class all those years, I wasn't cleaning the poo. I was teaching people how to clean the poo. And I feel like that was a big difference. And upon meeting up with you know Justin and Billy and all the THP guys and everything, it kind of re- revived me. And now I actually have the largest collection I've ever had personally. Um, I don't keep many animals, but I have a good, uh, a good array of different species. And my focus is now Africa and Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Right now, I'm keeping a large group of Renkals cobras from South Africa, uh, different parts of South Africa, mostly KwaZulu-Natal and a few of them from the Eastern Cape. Um, I have a handful of Sarasti Sarastis. Uh, those are all going to be Egyptian and Sinai localities. Uh, I've got uh, Atheris Quamangera. I've got uh, Naja Ashiai, Naja Nubai. Uh, Naja Haje, which is actually an Ethiopian locality in the red coloration. Wow. Um, I keep a handful of Bittus. Uh, I've got now I have Pseudocerastes field eye or fieldy, which I'm stoked about. Fantastic. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, so pleased with them. Um, I have one Gila monster, one cane break rattlesnake. Those are kind of like, you know, my Americana. Okay. Um, no such thing. I, yeah, right. And no uh, such thing as a cane break. <laughs> this it's, is a tim- it's a timber rattlesnake you have but yeah no, no. this is a cane break my friend this is a cane <laughs> break. and uh just recently i picked up a neonate pair of uh telescopus uh, obtusus so that uh even though the state doesn't consider them venomous uh i know that they are and so and yeah that's uh that's an abridged version of how i got into venomous um it was it was not on purpose, <laughs> to say the least. Well, that's, that's, yeah, what a fantastic wealth of experience to actually go through that. That's Thank absolutely you. I'm, I'm incredible. Nobody, and I mean nobody in the UK, will ever have that experience because we don't have the importers in the UK for venomous or anything like that. Everything is done in Europe, and then we will go out to Europe to buy that. So, yeah, there's... Except, you know, the, I mean, for the likes of Peter, who has a, a massive collection, very few people will have the experience of that many different species. We have people that are great with certain species and have a lot of experience with a particular genus, but people that have the, the breadth of experience that you, that you have, very, very few and far between. Only people that work at the Tropical Medicines Hospital or something like that. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I didn't know you kept Bittis. Yeah. Yeah, um, only uh, Aritans and uh, Rhinoceros for right now. I had uh, Nazi Cornus. I had Congo ones that were neon blue and purple, bright wow. violet purple. Um, I don't know if they had some kind of bug or if it was my neglect in some capacity, but they wound up passing. Um, I'm actually going to be bringing my Aritans. I have a Tanzanian Aritans that I'm going to be bringing to underground because they have uh, a mate for it that is 50% Tanzanian, 50% South African in like an orange coloration. Wow. So I'm probably going to try and pair them up. I know it's very late and Henry's going to yell at me. It's too late in the season, but I'm confident in my mail and getting the job done. <laughs> 100%. So you don't, you don't fancy or 
I've kept any of the dwarf bitters before. So I've worked with uh, I've worked with Perengii. I've worked with um, wow. Now I'm losing it. The many horned. Which one is the many horned? Cornuta. Cornuta. Thank you very much. So I've worked with Perengii and Cornuta, but I can never afford them. No, so, they're pricey. Even yeah. in Europe, where things yeah. tend to be a bit. That's another thing. Prices in the US are a lot different to the UK and Europe. Yeah. Venomous stuff in Europe by and large, is much, much cheaper than in the U.S. Well, I think, too, is that when I was just getting into this stuff, um, Venomous was so niche, and it was such a small circle of keepers that all Venomous was cheap. It didn't matter how rare it was. It was cheap. And I can't tell you how many times my friends and I would buy stuff for each other and just gift it to each other. My first uh, pair of uh, Legion's Cobras, uh, Naja Haja Legionis, my first pair, they were just gifted to me because a buddy had bred them on accident. He was like, hey, man, you want some some Moroccan Cobras? I said, absolutely. Wow. You know, I think he sold them for 150 bucks. Now they're, <laughs> you know, $1,000, $800 a piece now. Yeah. Um, but what, I, what I'm noticing personally is that those animals slowly faded away. The, the quote unquote cheap stuff, you know, the days of the $40, $40 Gaboon Viper and $90, you know, Indo-Chinese Spitter, those are all done. Um, and forgive me for using uh, not scientific names. Um, but now the importers are seeing their prices go up because the exporters in those host countries have the internet now. Yeah. And they're going on King Snake and they're going on Fauna and they're going on Morph Market or wherever. And they're seeing, okay, so I used to sell this baby Gaboon Viper for $25 to the wholesaler. And then the wholesaler would sell it for $65 or $75. Okay, that makes sense. But now I'm selling it for $25 and they're selling it on Fauna for $300. Well, I yeah. want a piece of that. 100%. And what happens yeah. is then they call they call the American importers and go, Hey, look, uh, you know, my guys have had a hard time finding babies or whatever. Uh, the price has gone up now. They're 200 a piece. And now the American says, well, I can't afford to do that. I, I can't pay that. There's no margin in it for me. And they don't import it. Yeah. So now the only ones available is captive bread, which yeah. just justifiably deserves an elevated price tag because of the care and the love and the, the TLC that was put into that animal. Yeah. We're seeing, um, Obviously, because of COVID, there's been limited exports from foreign countries into Europe. So we are seeing the prices rise dramatically at the moment. And there's been no shows. So, um, again, that's pushed the prices up. But it, even so, it, it, it's the disparity between the US and Europe in terms of the venomous prices is massive. But weirdly, the American stuff is extremely expensive in Europe. Um, but... Stuff that I've seen and chatted to yourselves and other friends that keep venomous in the States, stuff that you are paying an absolute fortune for um, is pence in, in Europe. I mean, Vipera amadites, to be fair, you can't give them away in Europe, really. And yet, you know, they go for, they go for decent money. Uh, you know, even, even the rarer um, Caucasian vipers, Deniki and Kasnikovines and stuff like that. Although they are expensive in Europe in terms, they might be two hundred and fifty pounds each. Oh my god! You know, when you compare that to what they're going to retail for in America, it's crazy. I, I cannot, I cannot fathom what Kaznakovai would go for in the states. Really? 
because I think there's only, and someone's going to please correct me if when they hear this, there's only three, maybe four individuals in the whole country that have them. Really? And only one or two of them have actually, and are breeding them. And they probably paid 1500 to $2,000 a piece for them. Wow. It, it's, so. then, again, then again, if you look at, um, let me think of a, a, a reasonably common rattlesnake in the US. E even your pygmy rattlesnakes, yeah, Cistrurus biliaris barbari, they're still 100, 150 pounds each, which okay. I would imagine in the States, they're nowhere near that. No, but I, if I was living in the UK, I could, in my mind, I could justify spending 150 pounds on a, a, a dusky pygmy because it probably cost. The, so the the person that field collected it probably was paid twenty five, thirty dollars for that snake. Then they had to pay for the box to put it in. Then they had to pay for yeah. the air pair. Then they had to pay for the yeah. guy to drive it to the airport. So yeah. 150 pounds sterling is, in my opinion, would be more than fine on an animal like that. Yeah. But when the animal is $25 field collected, oh, and you're selling it for a thousand pounds sterling. Yeah. That's where yeah. I'm like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree. So, but it's all, it's all relative. I think it comes in waves. Uh, and there's plenty of times when the hype is inflated temporarily and the market corrects itself. So, for example, um, some time back, I had acquired a – I'm not a mamba guy. I mean, I've kept every single species. Um, I love them. I give them much, much respect. But it's just not my MO. You know, I've had them. I played with them. Whatever. Not played with them, but you know what I mean. And uh, I went down to Strictly, and they had a, a three or four Veritas in one Neodesha enclosure. And I saw some green tail coming out of the hole and I saw some more green tail coming out of the hole. And then I saw a blue tail and I mean, sky blue powder blue, just, just incredible turquoise sheer to it. Right. So I said, Hey, how much for that? And uh, the owner of strictly says, ah, give me a hundred fifty bucks. I said, sold. So I proceed to remove said Mamba and sure as hell, it was freaking turquoise. It was wow. the, it was sapphire. In it, I can't come up with a better descripting word than that. And I bagged it up, and I took it home. And two days later, it turned green <laughs> because there was a girl in there, and he was hormonal. So I went back to see if I could get the girl, and I said, "Hey, do you guys still have those other three mambas in that thing?" And they go, "Why do you want that really pretty yellow one?" And I was like, oh, so his girlfriend got sold and uh, I had him. So he turned green. We named him Archer and we put him on display at Underground's retail store. And by the way, there's a reason for this lengthy story. Forgive me. Um, so he was on display at Underground for about a year. And I realized that it was too dangerous to clean his enclosure. It was too dangerous to have him there. Let's just be let's just be blunt. It was not a room within a room like it should have been or like it is now. It was just in the retail store, and we had we basically waited for the store to close, and then I would take 20, 30 minutes after the clock to you know make make sure all the customers are gone, take the mamba out, clean the cage, put them back, feed them, whatever. And I realized that this is just too much of a headache. So I had a friend named Andy who lived uh, on the other side of the state in Tampa. 
And he had a very, very large venom production line. And one of his key species was Veritas. So I called him up and said, hey, man, I got this mamba. Do you want it? It's a gift. It's my pet. You know, as long as you promise you're not going to sell the thing and you're just going to keep him for the venom line, I'll just give him to you. You know, 150 bucks, whatever. He's my friend. He says, oh, absolutely. He says, come on by whenever you want. So at the time, one of my best friends was getting his pilot's license and he needed cross country hours. So I said, hey, uh, his name is Sean. And I said, hey, Sean, you want to fly to Tampa? He's like, yeah, sure. W- what are we doing in Tampa? I said, well, we're going to put some snakes on a plane. Ah, genius. So, yeah, right. So uh, we took a, we, one morning. We left at like 10 in the morning. I bagged up the mamba, put him in a, a wooden crate, you know, marked danger venomous reptile, locked everything. And I met him on the tarmac. And we flew from Fort Lauderdale to Tampa. My friend Andy picked us up. We went back to his venom facility took the mamba out put it away we went up getting dinner and then uh, when we went back to the house he's like hey man can i give you something for the mamba something and i said no don't worry because how about a baby tanzanian puff adder and i was like well i appreciate it i'll take it but it's hardly a fair trade if you want to go tit for tat and he says what are you talking about look at fauna and i went on king snake and fauna and tanzanian puff adder babies were going for 650 dollars wow and I said, what is this? This is crazy. He goes, Tanzania shut down because yeah. of a chameleon problem. Yeah. And now you can't get anything out of Tanzania. Yeah. And I'm selling these babies for 450 online. And apparently King Snake or Fawn or whoever yelled at him and said, your price is too cheap. Everyone's getting mad. You have to raise your price. Wow. So I wound up getting this baby puff adder and now it's everything shy of five foot. But it just goes to show you that it's just a puff adder. It's oh, not. And it's, a, it's a brown Tanzanian caterpillar. Yeah. You know, it's exactly. Um, we had the same thing uh, with Atheris cerciflora, the little horned. Yeah, orc out of Kenya. Yeah, or oh, Tanzania. Um, they used to be. You used to pick them up at shows for about seventy pounds, hundred pounds. Right. Um, I had a nice collection of them. You move stuff on you think oh, i'll try something else i'll get them again in the future and exactly the same as you just said overnight tanzania shuts no wild caught exports the prices went from 70 to 150 pounds to now to try and get one in europe you're looking at about 2000 pounds 2000 euros That's beautiful crazy. snakes one of the cutest little snakes i've ever kept which i will never keep again but yeah yeah that's but- that's incredible so let me ask you, just, just picking up on something that, you, that just popped into my head while you were talking there. You said, oh, I've kept mambas, but they're not my cup of tea, really. Mm-hmm. What do you think, why do you think, why do you personally think certain venomous species are attractive? What, what influences do you think have made you like, I know you keep loads of hood tats for some reason, which escapes me. Um <laughs> Cobras, I've seen them in the wild. It's lovely to see them in the wild. I have no desire to own one at all. They do absolutely nothing for me. But I know you are absolutely stoked to have them. What yeah. do you think it is? Uh, and I'm the same. You know, a lot of people are rattlesnakes, totally dull. I'm super excited to keep rattlesnakes. Why do you think certain species pique the interest of certain people? What do you think the influence is? Well, I feel that it is a 50%. It's the allure of the species. 
whether it be uh, tales and fables or you know, old, old, old wives' tales of, oh, this is the snake that does X, Y, and Z. I mean, people love cobras because they have an oppressive hood, because they stand up, um, and because of you know stories like Ricky Tiki Tavi, things like that. Um, but some people get these animals because they just want to show off. They want to be the snake charmer that they've seen in the movies. They want to stuff it in a basket and pretend to play the flute. <clears throat> Me personally, my enthusiasm with them is everything about them, their nature. They're extremely shy. They're very, but they're very curious at the same time. Um, they'll do everything in their power to avoid confrontation. It is very much a, uh, a Kung Fu aspect of, I'm going to do everything I can to evade this problem, to evade this circumstance, but God forbid I have to defend myself. I'm going to have the, the most badass way to do it, you know, whether it be spitting mm -hmm. or the hood or playing dead or whatever it may be. And I just feel that they've always fascinated me in that regard is that there is a, uh, an elegance to them that is overlooked for whatever reason. And then, when the time comes, the ballet turns into breakdancing. I, I mean, that's that's just kind of my vibe on it. And to be honest, I feel like all the years I've kept Cobras, it was a, a false appeal, if you will, because now that I have my wrinkles, nothing compares. Fair enough. They just, I, they just do it for me. I think it's really interesting that you saying it. When you was a kid, you used to dress up as a snake charmer. Yeah. And now you're a grown man, you're keeping cobras. Yeah. And when I was small, one of the first snake books I got, you probably, don't, I don't think they had them in the States. There's a series of children's books called Ladybird Books. I don't know, do you have them in the UK, in, in the I'm, USA? I don't know, I'm unfamiliar. It, it was a massive thing from like the 1950s up until the end of the 80s or whatever. There's a series of children's books uh, and they do the Ladybird Book of Trees, the Ladybird Book of Butterflies, um, so on. It's literally everything you can think of. There's a Ladybird Book of sure, and it's it's really simply written. But the illustrations in there were really bright and really well done illustrations. And I can still remember as a small child, and I'm talking small child, probably under ten, getting the Ladybird Book of Reptiles. Nice. And on the cover, there's a rattlesnake. I think it's a Western Diamondback. I mean, there's, there's been different covers, but the cover sure. I got, Western Diamondback. Nice. Um, what do I want to see more in the wild than anything? What do yeah. I want to keep? It's rattlesnakes. That early imprinting, it, it's really strange. It's it really is. strange. It is. And I don't even feel like you, you say the word imprinting, and it is imprinting, but we almost we almost choose. We still We, we have the opinion. We have the taste. Right. So of all the snakes in that book, of all the snake books you may have had, the Aatrox stuck out in your mind for whatever it was. You know, for oh, me, you know, there was there was two snakes as a kid that I knew in my heart of hearts I was gonna have cobras and indigo snakes. And now that I'm an adult, I have both of them and I'm immediately <laughs> regretting my decision. <laughs> I've got to be honest, and I'm gonna probably get hate mail for this and be shot in the street. Indigo, dry mark on is Mark's. so overrated. 100%. Just big, boring, shit 
machines yes. really you're they don't, 100% they're correct. not they're not pretty yes they're they're great feeders but so are a lot of things i mean i've got a false water crowbar that will just eat anything um i just don't and the prices in the uk are insane yeah i mean insane yeah. you could probably almost get willardi for the same price That's yeah they're about, they're, they're about the same price here as yeah. as, as, as the originals yeah yeah it's ridiculous i just don't get it um and as i say i've a lot you know my friend my friends uh are all got large collections of cobras and they obsess about them like you do or oh, this one's such and such and this one's such and such they all look the same they're brown snakes <laughs> that the only time they're interesting is you've got to irritate them so they blow their hood up that is the only interesting thing about and them. see and that's the crazy part is people always rag on me because the only time my animals will hood is in is in an extreme defensive scenario. My goal, my sole purpose is for them to live the rest of their lives comfortably in my care and never have to open their hood yeah, ever again. That's great. Now, obviously, it's not going to happen. I mean, my ashes cobra literally gnaws on the glass when I walk by the cage. It fucking hates me. But I still do everything in my power to make everything easy and calm. And, you know, it's like I say in all, all my classes when we do the, the mentorship stuff is... I made the joke about ballets and breakdancing. Venomous keeping is an art form. And venomous keeping is very much a waltz. It's very much a slow and relaxed and very graceful thing. And, you know, people make jokes about you know, Karate Kid, wax on, wax off. That 100% applies to venomous keeping in some regard. And so does any of the Kung Fu movies, you know, Bruce Lee, be the water, you know. Yeah, be the water. I don't want the animal to know that I'm even touching it, let alone removing it from its enclosure. I want it to be at peace and calm so that way I can enjoy it and it's not stressed. A hundred percent. I think um, to be a safe animal keeper, and I, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have some very knowledgeable and experienced friends, yourself, Scott, Ty, people like that. Yeah. And I, they all say the same thing. You say the same thing. The beauty of keeping venomous is you have to be chilled and calm to do it. At the point, if you're stressed, if you're tired, if you're under the weather, if you're not feeling 100%, you just don't engage with it. And yeah. I like the feeling of when I am cleaning or checking or whatever I'm doing, the venomous stuff, that is all I'm doing. I'm not thinking about work. I'm not thinking about domestics, got to go shopping, got to walk the dog, whatever. I'm in a zone, and that's really relaxed. Even though there's a potential danger there, it is a kind of almost relaxing time because oh, yeah. everything needs to be thought through. Everything needs to be slow. Everything needs to be calm. It's not like with my other snakes, I can quickly, oh, I've got 20 minutes. I'm going to rush in. I'm going to open some drawers, check for poo, change the water, shut the drawer or whatever. Um, or with the geckos, I'm going to you know, check the food, make sure everything's okay. I'm... With the venomous stuff, I need to allocate time. I need to be in the, the yeah. mindset for it. And I think that's really one of the joys of venomous done properly is the fact that it is it, it is such a – I don't want to get all fucking Mills and Boone and wanky and go, it's a spiritual thing. But, but it is. It is a kind of, you know, yeah. it, in today's modern, hectic, 24-7 internet type society, it's very nice to have something that you're – so focused on that you have to focus on that it takes all that away and i hope everybody else that's keeping venomous has the same 
sort of ethos. I, I, I feel uncomfortable when people, as you say, are keeping venomous because it's what the cool kids do and they can get Insta likes. Right. I hope that they are conducting themselves in the same way, not I've got to get that snake out for an Instagram picture. Right. And that's tonight. that's something that, that honestly it pains me almost daily being on social media is there are certain individuals who are definitively doing showboaty shit for likes and follows. But the but I personally know that behind closed doors, they're doing it right. And they right. are doing it in, in, in a professional way, in a safe way. They are zen about it. But because of the, dare I say, addiction to the exposure, they have to showboat. And that's right. what's painful to me is that I don't have many likes and I don't have many followers and I'm okay with that because I'm at, I'm at this relaxation point. I'm doing this because I love the animals. And if, it, if the, the likes come, the likes come. So be it. If the followers come, so be it. If yeah. they don't, who cares? I'm still getting to have that moment with my animals. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, the other, the other side of it is the, the field herping side of it. I think that is a lot more dangerous than the actual, um, captive husbandry of it, yeah, because you have an element or you have a large element of control in the captive husbandry of it, yeah. When you're looking for venomous snakes, when you're field herping, and when you're trying to photograph venomous snakes, there's a lot of outside influences, and that's a lot more dangerous. And it's something I love. I mean, I'm fortunate, uh, to have hurt, as you know, in so many different countries, I've been really, really lucky. Um, I've sadly I've no more venomous species to see in Europe because I've found and photographed them all. Damn. Hence my damn. <laughs> um, hence my uh, wish to then come and photograph all the American venomous species. Yeah. Um, there's, there's quite a few bits I want to do in the Middle East still. I'm not particularly fussed with Asia. I don't know why there's not many Asian venomous stuff that I'm desperate to see in the wild. I don't, it's because they're all green. They are all green. Everything's green and lives up trees. It's not quite as exciting. Um, but that is a different, that's not a, a, a chilled Zen type thing, as you said. That's right. more of an, an adrenaline type thing. Yeah. But it, completely different. Um, you know, they're, they're black and white. I'm just, I'm, I, I'm fortunate enough to do both. And, you know, I, I feel very lucky to be able to do both. But I will say this, just not to cut you off, but. You have, um, let's say you have you have Barbarai in captivity, correct? That's and, correct. And you come to Florida, and you and I dr go driving down the cane fields, and boom, there's a Barbarai right there. I personally have recently learned in myself as a field herper, as a, a captive keeper, the different levels of adrenaline, and I feel like when I have adrenaline in the in the the captive collection, that's bad. Because yes, that means that things went wrong. If I have yeah. adrenaline in the field, it's not because I'm in a, a pre precarious scenario. It's because I'm excited that we found it. 100%. I feel 100%. like I feel almost more at ease to find a, for lack of a better synonym, a dangerous animal in the wild. Because if shit hits the fan, I can just let it go. It's, it's native. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like that that is a really, that's something I never took into consideration before maybe the past two years, because I've really been herping more these past two years than I ever have. Yeah. It's, um, 
but you, you're absolutely right. I can go into my snake building anytime I want, 24-7, and look at Sistrurus. I've got a fair few. Right. The first time I see one in the wild, I know I will lose my shit. Just, yeah. It's just so different. I can, you know, I can go into my snake room and I can hear a rattlesnake rattle. It's not a problem. The right. first time, and I've never done it. I mean, I've hurt all over the world, just not the US for some reason. The first time I hear a rattlesnake rattle in the wild, I know it's going to be like the first time I heard wolves in the wild. It's just going to be, it's primeval. 100%. The hairs on my neck will go up. It will yep. just be amazing. I cannot wait. Now, I will say this, because I know you are coming to see me in the near future. Hell yeah. I I have to tell you that it is extremely, it is, what's the word I'm looking for? Don't get your hopes up about hearing the pygmies rattle, because you honestly can't, unless you're really close. Like, oh, I, I'm too close. close. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't talking about pygmies. Yeah. But I'm talking... Yeah, I, you know, I'm talking more like going to Arizona or sure, even sure. even where Eric is. He's got you know he's got a nice population of timbers or something oh, yeah. like that. Those those uh, Eastern PA timbers are just the gorgeous, the jet yeah. black. But I mean, you know, just any any of those. I mean, to see a Cerberus in the wild, or yeah, you know, to see a, 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 a Cerastes in the wild. Oh mate, it would just be. You know, I know you, you know you, you're a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making you, hand gestures in a sideways motion for for yeah, network. Yeah, I mean, you. I know you have. You're the same as me. You have a real affinity for the genus Cerastes. I think they're fantastic. Yeah. And you've you've got Fieldii, and you've got um, Cerastes Cerastes. Right. The, and I've I've kept Cerastes Cerastes and Cerastes Rapira. I've not kept Fieldii. Um, but when I was in Israel in the in the desert, seeing the tracks of Cerastes and following those tracks and at the end of the tracks finding one that's amazing it's just an amazing experience amazing. You know, yeah it's just it's it's just something that you know everyone that's into whatever they keep I don't care if they keep geckos even if they keep ball pythons if they have to um go and see what you keep in the wild yeah it's just it's a it's an amazing experience, and it'll also make you such a a much better keeper. Absolutely, I'll tell you that trip. I've herped the Southwest U.S. a few times, and I've done a lot of the Southeast. I've done some of the Northeast, um, but that trip with Dr. Julander and Rob and Burke and Smitty, that trip, I feel like was the first time I was legitimately out of my element field herping because mm -hmm. we you couldn't just walk you know one mile back to the car and the road would take you out we were literally hundreds of miles from anything yeah and literally we're walking through an old you know uh, bombed out microchasm of a canyon with a, a trickle of a stream at the bottom and the rocks to my sides are reading 110 degrees fahrenheit at midnight and all of a sudden, Dr. Julander goes, oh, hey, look, a rattlesnake. And none of us would have seen, would have, none of us would have ever seen it had he not been up on the side of the wall and just thinking, God forbid something happened. And that Atrox did what it does. Yeah. 
how the hell are we going to, who's going to carry my fat butt out of this canyon? You know that, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I've, I've seen it so many times on different herp trips. Right. People get so excited. They find the species that they want to, that they've been looking for. And, you know, any field herper will tell you the buzz, you know, the chances of finding something are so remote. Yeah. And when you do find it, the, as you said, the adrenaline and the buzz of actually doing your research, the research paying off, being in the right area and literally turning the right rock or being in the right place and seeing that animal. Yeah. The, the adrenaline, it's like gambling. Once you've done it a few times, you are hooked on that 100%. Yeah. Well, and I think once you've, once you've won a couple of times. <laughs> once you've won a couple of times, yeah. Once you've won a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, and people forget that just because, yeah, this is happening, it's great. We have found, uh, I'm going to use uh, Deboya because this is where I've seen it happen. Sure. A lot. You found, we found Deboya in the wild. Beautiful. Let's start taking pictures. And your whole world shrinks down to what you're looking at in your viewfinder. Yeah. And I see people and they get closer and closer. Oh, I'm going to get the shot. It's going to be fucking amazing. This is going to be my wildlife photographer of the year shot. And mm -hmm. oh, my Instagram's going to be amazing. And they're getting closer. And right then to you have to, Yeah. And then what you see in the little viewfinder is a lot further away from where you actually are. And you end up with people with their hands a foot away from something that's so dangerous. And you have to get back. What are you doing? It's just that adrenaline people forget. And as you say, I've been in places. My closest, um, my closest call um, was with a, a Vipera amidites, which is, you know, it's a severe. It's not a proper, probably not a life-threatening bite. It's a severe bite. Right. My nearest hospital was four and a half hours away. Yeah. I was at the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere, in a country that, all right, it's not third world, but it's. It's pretty close. You know, we're yeah. talking Montenegro. It's not exactly, um, you know, yeah. at the forefront. You just, there's, you know, venomous, you know, watching, finding, catching and photographing venomous snakes in the wild is very, very dangerous. I've seen yeah. so many people, you know, oh, there's an Amadites, kneel down to take a picture. There's another one next to it that you're oh, kneeling, you know, you know. And, you know, the same, the densities of rattlesnakes, where there's one, there's normally quite a few. I've there's done so, it myself. Yeah, there's so many potential things when you're field herping. But yeah. no pun intended, it is such a buzz. You can't, you can't stop it. Yeah. Which is yeah. why we are going to Israel. It's going to we be amazing. 110%. I am going to the Holy Land <laughs> with my brother from the UK. 110%. <laughs> You will love it, mate. You will absolutely love it. It's just amazing. And I, as I say, I cannot, as soon as, uh, unfortunately, I don't think the US is open now until mid-November, by which time it's not really good for field herping. Yeah, but I, would, as, I wouldn't waste it. Yeah, as soon as, soon as the season starts next year, I'm going to bug the shit out of people. I'm going to be over there as much as I can. Yeah. You know, he's got so many great venomous species, and not just the rattlesnakes. I mean, I think you've got 35 species of rattlesnake in the US at the minute. I believe. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. 30, think, it might be 32, maybe, with with subspecies, something like that. Okay. Well, yeah, you've got around yeah. that. Um, and then you've got your copperheads. Oh, man. How can you take all that for granted? I just... Uh, how about this? I've never seen a copperhead in the wild, ever. You disgust me. 
I know that I found one in South Carolina. We had gone out road cruising on a rainy night. And I was like, this it's pouring rain. Why are we doing this? And they're like, no, this is when the copperheads come out. You can see their green tails in the, in the rain droplets. Wow. I'm like, okay. And we, 20 minutes later, we found the only snake of the night and it was an adult copperhead with a green tail and it was waffled by a truck. No oh, man. Yep. So that's as close as I've gotten. So I need to do it. I cannot imagine living in the US and not having seen everything. That's it, it's way harder than you think, sir. Mm, is it though? You know what it is? It's not harder in terms of finding the species. It's harder for most to break away from their daily grind and, right, make, okay. and make the proper commitment. And I'm yeah, guilty that, of it. I, I'm 100% yeah. guilty of it, you know? Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, uh, you, I, don't, I don't know what the total number of species for the U.S. is. Do you know? Total number of um, herb species for the U.S.? I don't. It's a lot. It's a is lot. It? Okay. I want to say it's well, it's well into the 400s, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the other thing too is like, it depends on where you live too, because like in my state is about almost 300, if not 400 miles long. Right. Yeah. And in the top, in the, in the Northwest corner of my state, you can find three of the six venomous. And there are people that go and they call it the trifecta and they find all three in one night. Some of them have found all, six in one night and that's just a freak anomaly you know what i mean i've been doing the, i've been herping florida for 22 years now i've never found a coral snake i live in prime coral snake habitat i've never found one so are you trying hard enough honestly i was for like two years straight <laughs> and then i was like screw it i'm, I'm not gonna no. find one it's the the people that aren't looking those are the ones that find them so oh my it's always birders that find them. Oh. All the cool, all the cool stuff is found by birders. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, uh, COVID. The last two years have been awful because normally I am. I normally have around about eight foreign trips for herping uh, wow. in a, in a year. And Very I, I, I don't. You know, it's my thing. I don't. You know, particularly drink. I don't smoke. I've got to spend my money on something. Um, right. But I haven't herped since February 2020 outside the UK because we just can't. So uh, I am, as my uh, as the Australians say, I am stinging for a foreign trip. I need to get out there and start herping. I agree. Uh, I need to get out there uh, to some foreign shows and start buying some more uh, rattlesnakes as well. Good stuff, sir. Very good stuff. Well, we're at an hour and 10 minutes, sir. That's great. You'd like to uh, conclude for our first episode. Uh, I mean, just to let people know uh, that it won't just be us two waffling on. Um, yes. Yes. I we, we've, we have got a great list of guests to come on and have a chat with us, um, ranging from, you know, some of the world's top venomous field herpers to some people that have, you know, have more venomous experience than anybody else, to people who have the fact that, you know, the biggest collections. Um, there's a raft of stuff that we want to get into. We want to get into photography. We want to get into equipment. We want to get into safe handling. We want to get into what we think of free handling. We want to get in, into, you know, specific species, specific genus, all that sort of stuff. So um, 
do tag along. Yeah. Um, it's as I say, this is. Uh, I, I think there's there's been a need for a venomous podcast for a long time. So hopefully, Phil and I will do some sort of justice to it. Um, don't forget to listen to the other podcasts um, associated with uh, THP. Don't forget to listen to the Phil Perpin podcast. Yep, all um, the M- the NPR podcasts. On all the NPR podcasts as well. Um, and I think that's it for now. Yeah. Well, uh, we will see you or you'll hear us on the next episode of the Venom Exchange Radio. I'm Phil, and thanks for listening. I'm Nipper. Have a splendid evening, and we'll catch you soon.